I'm still standing. What, what were we talking about? So I didn't watch any films this week, really? aside from the ones we were supposed to. So I'll have to talk about Master Chef during my bonus features. <laughs> well, breaking format, buddy. <sighs> Actually, and also, um, I guess I could break format and talk about Good Omens as well because I did watch that. Why? Uh, it's a good question. It did not uh, look to be that uh, good. <laughs> I don't know. I had kind of hopes for it just because of the cast. And indeed, the best thing about it is Michael Sheen and David Tennant. They carry it, pretty much. It's not that good. It's do you like uh, Neil Gaiman? No, I don't. Nor do I like Terry Pratchett particularly. That's so. that the other thing I was going to ask you, so... I don't know why you watched that, do you? I kind of, like, my brother liked Terry Pratchett, so he's always, like, around uh, when I was growing up. And I used to listen to yeah. the audiobooks read by Tony Robinson. Mm-hmm. But I never quite connected with it. And I always had a problem with um, the way his books always clicked into quite a conventional storyline. He was quite obsessed with certain types of plots. Uh-huh. Um, so it always seemed like an interesting premise, his right, book. Like they, never... they had like an interesting like idea at the center of them. Uh-huh. And then it would kind of devolve into a good versus bad showdown by the end. And it was kind of boring. It does sound boring. And that's basically what happens with this, in a way, it sort of gets swamped by its own plotting and becomes less interesting as it gets towards yeah. the end. Um, still, I'm sorry. Feeling like a little kid. I'm still standing. Started to burst out my Elton John impression. On the show or in, in, the, in the music? In the music. Are you excited to hear my uh, Aces uh, Hello Peril track? I am. <laughs> and, and, and you better not let the computer rap. This is... This oh, no, no. This will be all me. I can't make the computer rap. Good. I just don't want to listen to that song again. <laughs> By that song, I mean any of them. <laughs> <laughs> like a tennis ball. Bounce back. I'm still standing. Okay, should I keep on going? Yes, please. Has anything happened to you recently? Um, not really. I started working more hours, but that's about it. How's the job search going? <laughs> when I used to ask you that all the time. I do. I thought about it again, actually. I was going to mention that. Uh, I've actually... Yeah, uh, well. not, I haven't done anything, but I've, like, <laughs> thought... I've had the thought, I, th- I should do something <laughs> about this situation <laughs> soon. <laughs> We're still recording better than we ever did. <laughs> this has to be you have to do a full length version of that that's gonna be the end like kind of song from now on deal deal <laughs> I'll end this this episode with a full length rendition of I'm Still Standing <laughs> be, it has to be exactly the same length as uh yeah I'll the, do it okay good, good I'll I'll even try and match the BPMs there's little apps where you can uh <laughs> work it out this could be the best episode just for that plus my my Elton John pastiche which won't be a pure cover and we'll introduce Rocket Man. Oh. Even though there's already a song called Rocket Man, I'll have to think of a different song. Rocket Man! Do you want to get, get to the meat of the episode, or do you want to continue to talk about... Let's flop out the meat. <laughs> okay. Wait. Okay. Alright, so on the on this beautiful episode of the show, which is called Project A+, we discussed... Two we're going to discuss. We have not discussed them yet. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering why you uh, were going past tense already. 
You know, I had a headache when I woke up this morning. I took some excited migraine, so I don't have a headache anymore. But uh still makes me... There's a lot of caffeine in that stuff, so I feel a little loopy. Anyway. Uh, Project A+, Plus, the two movies we're doing, after, you, after, the, after the drop, are the recent Netflix film, which fits into our wheelhouse of covering Netflix films, and specifically Netflix romantic comedies, called Always Be My Baby. The other one is a film about the singer-songwriter, Elton John, called Rocket Man. And that's it. That's the two movies we're doing today. Mm. Hit it. Rocket Man. Oh, Rocket Man. You're gonna rise, you're gonna fall. You could have been called Elton Paul, your star. A man, dressed in an audaciously flamboyant costume, arrives in Medias Res to an AA meeting and proceeds to regale his fellow addicts and us, the cinema addicts, behind the veil of the screen with his life story. He sputters, his cadence shot through with an amphetamine rush, half drunk on his own intoxicating legends. And it seems he is a pop star. Who is this mysterious man? Why is pop singer Elton John, of course... And this impromptu entrance into AA has been spurred by a lifetime of love neglect and emotional abuse, with drugs and alcohol attempting to stand in for the absence of these basic necessities. The man then plunges into his audience into a pinball machine simulacrum of his life, hitting all the necessary biographical moments and rendering them with energy, color, and a variety of machine-tooled musical performances. So far, so Bohemian Rhapsody. What separates this film from that dreg of a musical drama is threefold. One, its central subject is still alive and had input on the way in which he was depicted still in the film. Still standing, if you will. Yeah, if, I, if, you, if you will. <laughs> uh, and Elton John's insistence that the film uh, must ha- or needed to have an R rating, I think, is to be commended. Uh, two, this film makes no attempt to whitewash the subject's sexuality, or diet of drugs and eating disorders. And three, the film blends the bog-standard biopic aspirations of that previous film with actual musical numbers, pushing John's music to the center of the film. Now, Hugh, neither you or I, from what I can recall, are much in the way of Elton John fans. Correct. The question is, then, despite this basic barrier, did the film manage to win you over and put a song in your heart and a beat in your shoe step? (laughs) Is that good? Uh, ultimately, I think this film suffers for what it is, which is a rock and roll biopic, yeah. and nobody needs another rock biopic, no matter how well-crafted. True. But I will say that it does manage a few moments of grace, and I do think its approach to the material is interesting, at least in part. And I also didn't regret seeing it in a cinema. Oh. And, you know, that's, that's not nothing, especially yeah. when it comes to this type of film. For sure. Which is really normally better served on, on television, right? Yes. Usually the cinematic style is television. <laughs> um, and I also think it's worth noting that there are a few artists as perfectly suited to the boilerplate biopic treatment as Elton John. Uh, yes, definitely. The, the showmanship, the schlockiness, the lack of nuance even. That's baked into his sound already. That's, yeah. that's the source. So there is, there is this harmony between the form and its source material. Yes. Um, Taron Egerton does a pretty good job. Yeah. 
especially in the musical numbers, uh, even if his voice is noticeably thinner and less versatile than Elton John's own. Um, I think he does a good job, though. I think he's, he's, he's quite, quite a capable performance. I would concur. Charismatic in those uh, dance musical sequences. Which is surprising, because I think the only other thing I had seen him in would be the Kingsman movies, which, is, which are torture. Yes. And I think where this film truly leaves the ground, as it were, <laughs> is in its musical sequences. Especially uh, it's it's non-diegetic one, if that's the yes. term you can use for the non-performance sequences, the ones that are just part yeah. of the narrative. I don't know if there's a proper word. But like yeah, the musical versus like performance, like musical sequences. Exactly. So yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when this film announced itself early on as a full-on musical. Yes, I was too. Or at least a jukebox musical. Because yeah, I was, I was pretty afraid that it would be, it would take the, uh, I mean, not that I've seen this movie, but the Bohemian Rhapsody route of only having the performances be contained to like rehearsal or songwriting or um, performance parts. Yeah. And I think it, it's a, it's a smart move because considering the type of music that Elton specializes in, it sounds like he's writing for a musical on most of his records anyway. Yeah, for sure. So those in narrative sequences, as I guess I'll call them set to things like Saturday night's all right for fighting and honky cat. Yeah. Have an infectious exuberance about them. I thought they were well staged, well performed, well shot. Yeah. And even those touches of magic realism during his uh, iconic stage performances that they, they teased in the trailer, which were a little on the nose, but I think they're, they're quite effective. Like the rocket man? <laughs> yeah, him taking off into space, and, yeah. or, like, or just the audience and him leaving, leaving the ground temporarily during one of his early performances. It's on the nose, but it works. It works, yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's what you, what you expect. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's in keeping with... with Elton John again. Yeah. Um, and I do like the... F- I think it's interesting as an aside to note that uh, since Elton John uh, didn't come up with a single lyric or song title himself, they were all supplied by Bernie Taupin, we are robbed of those goofy biopic moments. Yes. <laughs> so we, we don't get like a line of dialogue spoken in passing that provides the key line. <laughs> Which is Like... Uh, <laughs> Like this, this letter sucks. I wanted iceberg, not rocket man. Wait, say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of that, we just get Elton John at his his family pianos, knocking out the tunes in full, basically with little apparent effort. Just yeah. like, all right, here it is. <laughs> Which is just how I mean, that's how I write songs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, I did I did come across this fact. Apparently, he would actually try and compose a lot of these songs in a really short space of time and discard the, the lyric if he didn't get anywhere quickly. That's interesting. Uh, obviously, I'm assuming he didn't, like, bash Take the whole one thing day, out yeah. in, one, in one go and just go, yep, there it is, done. <laughs> that is often how I make music, so, you know. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to some of my criticisms of this film uh, a little later, but what did you think of it overall? Yeah, I think I uh, basically on the same page as you. I thought it was... You know, enjoyable. I, I uh, you know, the yeah, Taron Tara Egerton is is pretty good, and I think the all the like musical numbers are pretty, pretty enjoyably staged. Um, mm. Yeah, some of the dramatic beats don't quite work, but um, I agree. Yeah, as a, as an entertainment, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely definitely pretty good. I think that um, well, as you said, like it makes pretty good use of like. Cinema. <laughs> yes, I think it justifies itself as cinema. Yeah, like it, it's not like just like a flat like TV presentation of these numbers. I mean, it, you know, I think that is aided by the fact that they are musical numbers. 
And I think some of them were sort of like Hunter Rubens. Like the, I think the uh, one that opens the film, uh, I thought was like pretty bad. But as soon as they got to the uh, Saturday night is all right for fighting, I thought it improved significantly. Yeah, that was a good, that was well done, that sequence. Yeah, I think that's about it. I mean, it's not like especially like, you know, deeper, meaningful films. I don't know how much we're going to be at a scratch at here, you know? Oh, I've got tons. Well, yeah, of course you do. <laughs> well, I so I agree with you. Like the 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 core arc of this film, the dramatic arc, is about as dull as you'd expect. Yeah. Like we move from from John's difficult childhood with yeah. a cold, unsupportive father to his fortuitous partnership with I love it when I can tell that you started reading something. <laughs> because because I'm able to string a sentence together suddenly. It's like, oh, this is unexpected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So then we start using words like fortuitous more often. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <clears throat> so we move from John's <laughs> difficult no, We go from the <laughs> with a cold, unsupportive father to to yes to his fortuitous partnership with Bernie Torpen, played by uh, Billy Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Bell. Jamie Bell. It was a strange accent. <laughs> to his exploitation at the hands of these industry men, to his inevitable drugs and alcohol fueled decline, then ending, as always, on a note of redemption and hope. Yes. Um, although, obviously, he's, I think, uh, what's his name? Dexter Fletcher, Dustin Fletcher, Dexter Fletcher, Dustin Dexter Fletcher. Dexter Fletcher. Um, although I think he does, uh, obviously, his best work with the musical numbers, he did a solid job trying to inject those non-musical sequences with some style, I think, and yeah. a sense of momentum. Um, but there's certainly a wearying inevitability about everything. Yeah, the, the dramatic art of the film is incredibly formulaic. Yeah. I mean, to their credit, uh, Fletcher and, uh, I guess, the screenwriter, Lee Hall, uh, attempt to address that over-familiarity using the AA sequence that you mentioned yeah. uh, as the framing device of the film. I think that was a clever move, because yeah, our first exposure... It also it, it sort of justifies the um, flights from reality, too, you know? Yeah, but I think the fact that our first exposure to uh, Elton John is as a post-success uh, addict yeah. of some description. Like, w- we know that he's hit this bad state because of his success. Yeah. Um, so it kind of it, it foreshadows that aspect of the narrative so that when we finally get to those uh, rock bottom scenes, we've kind of already been acclimatized to it or at least resigned to the, the fact that it's going to happen. So I don't think it carries the same kind of exploitative weight that those scenes do in other biopics. No, for sure. Which really try and milk everything they can get from that rise and fall structure to get maximum impact. This is like we know that's gonna that's coming. That's... We're starting at that place, essentially. We're telegraphing it. And uh, I guess it's a self-conscious move. Like, there's an awareness of the biopic tropes in the construction of this film. But I actually think that's a somewhat psychologically astute move as well. Yeah. Because, like, his Elton John's low moments, the outrageous successes and everything, mm-hmm. are not treated as, like, aberrations of his character. Like, he's not just the innocent Reggie Dwight who's corrupted by fame, a victim of his own success. He's Elton John because the idea of Elton John kind of encompasses everything about him, the entire sweep of his character, the fantasy, um, his talent, the best he can be and the worst he can be is all kind of wrapped up in that moniker. Mm. This is something that didn't necessarily hit me while I was watching the film, um, because when you're watching it, it, 
none of it feels especially unconventional. Yeah. And it hits all those expected biopic marks. But yeah. I actually think the more I reflect on it, um, that type of insight about the, the core character is, is quite rare in a film of this type. Yeah, for sure. To be clear, like the, the inside is buried beneath a few layers of cliche and a lot of uh, pat psychology. Yeah. And there's a there's a rather ridiculously overwrought <laughs> sequence in which the, the grown-up Elton John at this AA meeting... You, when he confronts his, his, the phantoms <laughs> of his loved ones. Yeah, but more specifically, he hugs his hug-deprived younger self. <laughs> <laughs> but that is almost, like, so ridiculously yeah. on the nose that it works. Yes, yeah. <laughs> almost. Again, again, it makes sense for... <laughs> for Elton John, yeah. For Elton John. Yeah. Uh, the film also attempts, uh, I guess, with a wink to the camera to get past its its rock star acting like an asshole sequences by like bluntly acknowledging the fact. Um, so I did like the quote. I might be misphrasing this a little bit, but at one point Elton John says, "I started acting like a cunt in 1975, and I forgot to stop." Yeah, which I thought was a nice acknowledgement. But um, even still, no matter how you frame that or try and get around it. The stretch of the film where we have to actually deal with arsehole Elton is pretty dull and pretty unpleasant, I would say. Yeah. There are a few things less interesting to me than watching a character's decline into drugs or alcohol, and these films are no exception. These scenes are no exception, I should say. And I, I think despite what I've said about the insight into John's character, I don't think that insight extends anywhere else in the film. Um, yeah. It's obviously biopics are going to be pretty reductionist, right? Yeah. Um, but this seems at times maybe aggressively so. Yeah. The most that can be said about maybe the next most important character in the film, Bernie Taupin, is that he's genial and not gay. <laughs> yeah. Those are his two traits. <laughs> but he and, loves um, Elton regardless. Yeah. And the portrayal of, like, uh, Elton John's parents and the sinister industry men do have a ring of score settling about them. Yeah, for sure. Especially since Elton John was an executive producer, right? Yeah. Uh, even if they're somewhat accurate to his true story, that it did feel like he wanted to settle some scores with that. And what was the last thing I wanted to say? We talked about this earlier. I can't remember if it's actually on the recording or not, but... The film ends with a recreation of the video clip for I'm Still Standing, a shot-for-shot recreation of the iconic video. Well, I couldn't tell if it was a recreation or if they edited him into footage. Oh, I, sh- I assumed it was they actually redid it. Oh, because I, I actually assumed the opposite, just because it, it looked uh, like it was composited to me. Oh, uh, okay. But maybe not. It, that could have been the byproduct of whatever filters they used yeah, to try they could, they, they, they and recreate that. Um, but yeah, that'd be interesting to know. Um, I, 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 I would be surprised. I would be honestly surprised if they didn't do a shot for shot remake because yeah, it sounds like a, a fun thing to do as part of this project. Uh, and it also kind of, a, I like the fact that that is also a self-conscious move that embraces the film being what it is, which is a mimicry of, <laughs> of a performer's career. It's like, well, let's Let's just dispense with the attempts to dramatize his narrative arc and just do a shot-for-shot shot yeah. remake of a video clip. Yeah, it was an enjoyable end because just like okay, yeah, everything was fine. Yeah. This is what you're waiting <laughs> for. <laughs> and it also helps that the lyric of the song "I'm Still Standing" uh, reflects the narrative arc. Yeah. What did you make of uh, Bryce Dallas Howard? <laughs> uh. 
Yeah, I think they, I think they might have edited him into the footage. That's a shame. But what did you make of Bryce Dallas Howard? Uh, I thought she was really bad. She was indeed. She was terrible. <laughs> Her accent was all over the place. Um, so she plays his. She plays Elton John's mum, and she's obviously putting on a British accent of some description. I was talking to one of my friends, and Bryce Dallas Howard is always terrible. <laughs> like, what is she good in? This is from uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour, which covered this film recently. And one of the guests who was talking about it was Guy Brannon, and he said, every time I think, why is Jessica Chastain so bad in this? The answer is, it's Bryce Dallas Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she is like the (laughs) well-read Jessica Chastain. Did uh, any of the other performances resonate with you at all? Um, I thought they were all fine. Hmm. You know? I mean, none of the characters, the other characters besides... The titular Elton, you know, is particularly well drawn, but uh, but I mean, everyone, everyone seemed appropriate for the character that they were portraying, you know. Um, like we we we've alighted talking about the one of the other major characters, which is uh, oh, I forgot his name, <laughs> the evil manager person. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's played by uh, Game of Thrones is Richard Madden, uh, and he's fine, I guess. Something Reed is the guy's the cat the the person's name upon which he's based. Oh, okay. I mean, he's in the the same person is depicted in Bohemian Rhapsody as well. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah, they should have had uh, Richard Madden play him and have it be like a, a, a Jackie Brown. Uh... No, actually, a different Game of Thrones actor portrays him in Bohemian Rhapsody. I think that's which one? What's his name? John Reed. Oh, yeah, Aiden Gillen. Wow. Oh, he's the person who I asked, did that great clip of... Uh... There you go. <laughs> God, I just know they're going to make a Bowie biopic like this at some point. It's going to be a disaster. I'm going to hate it. You can even structure it the exact same way. Yeah, you could. So I like I like the idea of including his flirtation with fascism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. That's like the, uh, that's the lowest point. <laughs> we all have that low point, Hugh. Come on. It go, yeah, it goes alcohol first, then drugs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. then fascism, and then back to greatness. Well, he was a judge on the uh, Australian version of the X Factor. John Reed? Yeah. Wow. In 2005. So he became the manager of Queen after Elton John. Yeah. And he lives in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah. Could go ask him the truth. <laughs> that would be funny. I'm still standing... Uh, do you know a, a funny detail that I discovered while looking into Rocket Man, um, and specifically its director, uh, Dexter Fletcher? Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up watching a show uh, which was an early uh, success for Stephen Moffat as a writer uh, called Press Gang. Oh, I've heard of that. And Dexter Fletcher was uh, one of the main characters in it. So That's funny. That's... So he's gone from acting to directing... Uh... Yeah, he, he was known as an actor initially. Um, but yeah, I, I, vividly know him as an actor, so I was surprised uh, to come across that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I think Rocket Man is surprisingly enjoyable. Yeah. I would say if, if you're in any way an Elton John fan... Oh yeah, it's like a must-watch. You'll get even more out of it than us, who are not especially fans of Elton yeah. John. I mean, just to, just to be clear, you know, he has some good songs for sure, but... Yeah. We're not, like, hardcore. And some, and some bad songs. <laughs> just like we all have. And, and Benny Tolfin's a pretty uh, not Eat great sugar. list. <laughs> <Weird> <laughs> I'm still That's such a good song. I don't know. There's sort of like a demonization of sex in this movie a little bit. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, this, 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 uh, you're not mir- consciously mirroring it, but we are mirroring the, uh, the podcast I listened to as well, where that Guy Brandon quote came from. Yeah. Because they did talk about the fact that the only sex depicted in this film is with that evil industry guy. Yeah, but I mean, the, the specific part where they have sex is, like, depicted pretty positively, I think. Yeah. But there's, but like, like there's allusions to the fact that he's, he's, he was addicted to sex. Like he says that at the yeah. start of the film. And there's like that sort of orgy scene too. I mean, I think you're, but I think you're supposed to read that scene where he's like being lifted by other people as like a shorthand for he's having a lot of sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fair enough. Um, it did seem a little, ch- even though this was supposedly like bravely R rated as we've discussed, um, it did seem a little chaste. Yeah. I mean, it is as, as Wikipedia tells me. It is the first major Hollywood production to show gay male sex seen on screen. So, just mm. <laughs> a little bit pretty unfortunate. What about Brokeback Mountain? Does that not count? Do they do they have a sex scene? Oh yeah, much uh, more explicitly than here. I don't know. I guess there's there's like a sort of explicit sex scene with uh with the Richard Madden. Yeah, but that's that's the, the it felt it felt um like it was. Trying to seem explicit. I mean, it just seemed like a Hollywood sex scene to me, you know? So in that sense, it's progressive. Maybe even slightly shy of a Hollywood sex scene, because we didn't get any pumping. No pumping. But, I mean, I don't think that was a... It, was a, it wasn't pumping sex they were having you. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of a lot of men, when they first have sex, do not have anal sex the first time. No, I know that, but what were they doing? Crossing swords. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were just rubbing against each other, man. <laughs> That Have you ever really... had sex before? <laughs> that, that doesn't really work, does it? <laughs> I, I don't know. They're scissory. They've got to move on to something else. Like, it doesn't yeah, have, yeah. obviously doesn't have to be anal that, sex. That part's, that part's cut, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Maybe, I don't know if uh, Broke Brown Broke is considered a major Hollywood production. Maybe that's what the distinction it's making is. Are they just going by budget or something, or what? Well, it only had a fourteen million budget, but it may have been produced by like it wasn't one of the big studios. It was like Miramax or something, or what? Yeah, I think that might be it. So when they say major Hollywood production, yeah, they mean, like a, they mean like a big studio, one of the big four, or whatever. Yeah, it is. like Paramount in this in this case. Yeah, yeah, it's produced by something called River Road Entertainment. So I'm still standing. Um. Yes, yeah, you know what? Not bad. Not bad. I'm happy to give it three to three and a half stars. Me too. It did give me a new appreciation for Elton John's Elton John's songs. I think a bit. I think they work very well in in this context, yeah. especially with good theater sound. They yeah. really take off for sure. Eh? Eh? Yeah, like like he does in that scene because they're they're, they're inherently crowd pleasing. Yeah. So when you when you need like and especially if you had his catalog to play with when yeah. you needed something. As the filmmaker, you could just reach in and pluck something that worked. Yeah, all the choices are pretty apropos, I think. But they did they did miss a trick, though. You know the sequence where he says he's going to kill himself and he jumps into a swimming pool? Yeah. There's actually a song called uh, I Think I'm Going to Kill Myself, I think. <laughs> I think I'm going to kill myself by jumping into a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was on one of their big albums as well. Yeah, here's a song called I Think I'm Going to Kill Myself on the album... Honky Chateau. From which Honky Cat comes also. And Rocket Man itself, in fact. Whoa, he has a beard. <laughs> that, that cover is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on. To your song. 
Yep, my Hello Peril inspired... Your homage to Bay Area hip-hop yep. commences now. Hey, guys. What's up, Hunter? I watched this new movie. What's it about? It's a Netflix film. What's the genre? It's a rom-com. What's the horror? It's called Always Be a Maybe, and it's way better than the boss, baby. Who's in it? It's got Randall Park, who I'm sure will hit it. Out of the park, up to the plate steps, Owie Wong. I'd sure like to hit that ass like a bong. I guess that really isn't PC. I feel kind of bad, as you can see. What do I got to do to atone to get into that? forgiveness zone. Why I know I'll follow the samurai and commit seppuku, that old horikari. I'll take this knife and put it in my stomach. And wow, that was brilliant. I'm such a genius. That was pretty good, I must confess. Alright, now I'm so excited to hear your aces summary of Fucking oh, it's my turn. Goddamn. Always be my maybe, baby. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm still standing. The directorial debut of Nanachka Khan, who is probably best known for creating Fresh Off the Boat and Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. Always be my baby is the... <laughs> whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Always be my maybe. Yeah, I see what they did there. That's clever. Uh, Always be my maybe is the latest addition to Netflix's growing stable of romantic comedies. Here, our star-crossed lovers, Sasha and Marcus, are played by Fresh Off the Boat alumni Ali Wong and Randall Park, both of whom also contributed to the screenplay. Sasha and Marcus are childhood friends who, after an awkward sexual encounter, lose touch and wind up living different lives in different cities. Resolved to support his father in the wake of his mother's passing, Marcus has remained in the family home and in the family business, which is like an air conditioning business or something, while Sasha has flourished as a high-profile chef in the New York culinary scene. When Sasha returns to her home city, which is San Francisco, to open a new restaurant, Sasha and Marcus are reunited, and soon the old spark returns, albeit in the guise of friendship. But things are not so simple in this game of love. Sasha is engaged to that guy from Lost who looks like a Korean Mads Mikkelsen, while Marcus is in a relationship with some hippie chick. Will true love prevail? Yes. Yes, it will. Spoilers. Now, Hunter. Were you charmed by this latest romantic confection from Netflix? Uh, I thought it was certainly more enjoyable than other romantic comedies you watched from Netflix. Such as? Such as Set It Up. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, what was that the one? With the Kissing Booth. We did watch that. Uh, <laughs> when we first met. When we first met, thank you. Um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it is funnier and better than those films but it suffers from a lot of the same problems as those films do mm-hmm. so uh, i would say i had a mixed response i thought the beginning was terrible uh basically up until they started being played even even as soon as they turned into adults i thought the movie got better yeah and then i thought the ending was just it, it just felt like it just didn't like ever feel enjoyable or genuine that they would break up. It just felt really rushed and sort of like uh, pat and like they were conforming to the genre convention, you know? I don't know. It just felt, it felt weird that just the whole end sequence I just thought was, was 
poorly done. Um, Interesting. Uh, and I was, I, I like, <laughs> started, I started to go crazy just about the amount, the sheer amount of like product placement that's in this movie too. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'll say one final, one final note is that it includes an absolutely atrocious cover of Young Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Within the first ten minutes, so I was like, "I'm going to hate this movie." Uh, so the the fact that it, I don't loathe it is perhaps a testament to how uh, charming the leads are and how uh, good some of the side characters are written. Mm. Um, though I think the fact that it, it like set it up features a, a a gay character specifically, so they can be like, "We have a gay character in our movie." I thought it was a little strange and. To uh, return to our patented uh, <laughs> uh, word that has swept the internet and has been cited in academic papers across the United States, I think there's a bit of a woke screen going on here <laughs> with that character. But it's weird that too that the character is like sort of this uh, forever assistant. I don't know. <laughs> Similarly, to set it up, the uh, the fact that these characters are. <laughs> That one of the characters is like incredibly wealthy. <laughs> it's never like addressed. I don't know, but not not to get too much into like the class politics. But obviously, this film is like not. It doesn't really. You know, obviously, it's presenting itself as a fantasy and, and stuff. And like, so it doesn't it doesn't hold up to like a Marxist interpretation. But otherwise, it's <laughs> but quite... it does it does hold up to it in that it's it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think I think Randall Park and Ali Wong are very charming as the leads. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think there are two really good side performances in this film uh, by James Saito, who plays uh, Randall Park's father. I think he's really funny. Uh, and I think Karen uh, Soti, who plays his bandmate, is also pretty funny. And I, I did enjoy uh, Keanu Reeves' cameo a bit. Okay. Um, I only really laughed at one line, though, so <laughs> you can take that as well. Okay, interesting. Uh, what did you think? Uh, I agree with a lot of what you said, actually. Um, so, like, overall, I found this pretty enjoyable. Uh, I, too, liked Ali Wong and Randall Park. I thought they were both charming and funny. Uh, particularly Wong, who I was more familiar with as a comedian uh, mm-hmm. than as an actor. Although she has acted before. Um, and there, there are fun details in the script. Uh, although we can sort of talk about uh, the music they produce uh, maybe separately. I quite liked the inclusion of the Bay Area hip-hop stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there was, like, a cameo um, by Lyrics Born uh, at one point. And, you know, a decent amount of jokes land. And I say land quite uh, generously uh, in that I wasn't always making a noise of laughter. <laughs> but, like, you know, you appreciate them enough. They're kind of charming, you know. Yeah, yeah. I guess usually it was the, the... A lot of it was down to the performances, especially... Uh, Wong and Park just interacting with each other. I agree that I don't think it was very successful on a narrative level, even by the modest standards of rom-coms. Yeah. Like, yeah, it it generates a good deal of combustion from its leads who have, um, I would say, good comic but not romantic chemistry. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think by the final act of the film, um, yeah, we're, we're running on fumes. We're the... <laughs> The com- comedic has completely dissipated. Yeah. Like, the narrative essentially collapses uh, for me at the point at which Ali Wong and, and Randall Park uh, first get together. Yeah. 
They should have just edited it there. Yeah, that, that that climax you mentioned, it lacks the basic emotional payoff that this a film like this needs. It doesn't matter that it's conventional or not. You can still do that well. Yeah, for sure. Because it follows a fairly standard trajectory, like the that most rom-coms do. The obstacles clear that have been set up. Uh, the couple finally get together. Then they have a fight. Then they reconcile uh, at the end via some grand uh, romantic gesture. But it just felt a little bit too chill or something. There was no passion. <laughs> um, and, it yeah, it just felt, like, perfunctory. And, yeah, I agree. And, and they at least, at least, even if they couldn't generate the passion, they, they should have at least come up with a more romantic gesture or more inventive romantic gesture than um, him showing up at the press conference. Or, or her fucking buying his merch. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, the press conference thing, we've seen that in so many films. Yeah. It's just... Yeah, it's second, uh, it's second only to uh, she's on an airplane taking off <laughs> and he needs to run in and do it just for a pure genre convention. Um, but yeah, I think I think uh, also also like this is following on from what you said. But the main reason I'm complaining is because I wanted this to be better, which means yeah, me it showed enough promise uh, for at least some of its running time that you you, you know you wanted uh, more for it, and and it's it's the strength of some of the the bits that work that emphasise the weakness of the conclusion of this film. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to necessarily give the wrong impression. This is on Netflix. If you already have Netflix, it's free. It's better than most Netflix productions, romantic <laughs> comedies or otherwise. And if you have any affinity for the genre, you'll probably have a good time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you liked the Keanu cameo, right? That was okay. I thought some of his lines were funny, but is it also like relying on his like public image for me to enjoy it fully? There's two things I'll say about it. First of all... But you have you have way less affection for Keanu Reeves than I do, so... True, I have some, though. Um, but the first thing I'll say is that it would have been significantly better if they hadn't spoiled it in the trailer. I didn't watch the trailer, so... But I, I knew about it before it anyway. Yeah, like, if they if they tried to keep it as, like, a yeah. surprise thing. But obviously they want to, you know, get as much mileage... Yeah. Uh, marketing mileage from this... But so. why do they need to market it at all? I mean, who cares? It's not going to make money... <laughs> So there's that side of it. I think it would have been better just as a complete surprise. Uh-huh. Uh, because, like, the then you would be experiencing the same sort of surprise that Marcus experiences when, you know, Keanu Reeves suddenly walks into a restaurant. I think that would have been much better for the audience. And I would hazard a guess that the filmmakers probably would have preferred it that way as well. Yeah. And it was Netflix pressure that... Taken yeah, from them, perhaps. Taken from them. But even still, I don't think... Keanu added anything to this film or it didn't really help the narrative and maybe even uh, distracted from it. I did think the scene where they're at the restaurant is like excruciating. <laughs> I just don't, I don't need any fucking, you know what, it's just the same thing as fucking wine country. I don't need any goddamn more, more uh, scenes of people being like, oh, modern food is so weird. Yeah, I, I felt the same. Even though I, I have similar reservations about that type of stuff. I, I agree. I, I'm so sick of like, this type of cheap parody. It's just, it's so easy. <laughs> they even have a few allusions to performance art stuff via his uh, hippie girlfriend as well, hippie millennial. I'm glad they didn't go all out there, though. Um, but um, I think the whole actors playing asshole versions of themselves thing is played out by yeah. this point, and I, I don't need yeah. to see it. No, neither do I. And there's also, like, 
what's the right way of saying this? There's a goofiness, sure, sure. a goofiness to the Keanu sequences, which was a little bit at odds with the rest of the film. It also distracted from the fact that, or detracted from the fact that the emotional arc that was occurring in the background, because this, this sequence with Keanu leads up to their getting back together, right? Yes. That's, yeah. that's the thing that leads up to it. And that seems like a, not probably the best role, idea. Yeah. To, to if you're going to have this that. throwaway goofy cameo, you probably should put that somewhere else in the film. And this yeah, should have been sure. maybe, maybe, maybe utilize the Korean Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, for this bit instead. Daniel Dequim. Yes, he has a name. Yeah, it seemed, it did seem strange that they had basically like him and Keanu Reeves just playing like, I don't know, they seemed to serve a pretty similar function. Yeah. But maybe they like had written it as the same character and then it was like, oh, Keanu wants to do this or something like that. I don't know. Now, now one thing I want to say about the band, Hello Peril. Uh, terrible. <laughs> I really thought uh, that in the sequence when we're going to go see them play right i thought the joke was gonna be that he was awful right but it's not it's that they i know but that, that was like the i kept on being like but, but then when they started playing i was like oh this is awful so <laughs> therefore i was right about that being a joke the joke but no the joke is that he's good i guess the joke quote unquote so randall park was in a band like that he was that's true and the music in this film was produced by dan the automator so it has quite a good pedigree. You see, there's a there's a there's a uh, photograph or a poster of the uh, the handsome boy handsome boy modeling school. Yeah, that, that's it. Which yeah. is a reference to Get yeah. Alive. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's all coming together. It is. It's a conspiracy. Uh, but but so he so when Sasha returns to San Francisco and she like reacquaints herself with with Marcus. Um, and she finds out that he's still doing his band. Like, she's like, you're still doing the band? He's like, yeah, it's been going for 16 years strong. Yeah. Guess which other band has been going for 16 years strong? Uh, okay, man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to get that in there. <laughs> so you're about, you're about as good as Pale Apparel. Yes, exactly. Did you enjoy the fact that this film was co-written by the co-writer of the forthcoming Akira adaptation? Really? Yes, it was. Randall, Randall Park is still- no, uh, whoever the third co-writer is. Michael Golmeco. He's writing uh, the Akira adaptation with Taika Waititi. Okay. <laughs> does that give you hope? Uh, it doesn't give me anything, really. I'm sure that movie's going to be terrible. Anyway, do you have anything else you want to talk about with uh, Always Be My Maybe? Always Be My Maybe? No, I do not. It's a solid two and a half stars for me. I might give it a three, maybe. Mm. Uh, it's, it's like, okay. There's only, again, like I said, the only one that I laughed at was when uh, James Hattie was like, "You should stop investing in kale. <laughs> Lettuce is going to come back." I thought that was a funny line. Yeah, he was good in that. He was good value. He was <laughs> the actor who played the shredder. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Okay, well, you ready to move on to bonus features? Yes, let's do it. Should we not do the box office again? <laughs> oh no, we have to do that. <laughs> Oh, that was the worst bit of editing the last one. I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office Number 10, The Hustle, with $1,322,842. Okay, number 10 in Australia is a film called NGK. <laughs> Which grossed uh, $53,443 and is an Indian political action film. This sounds great. 
Well, Indian movies really lighten up the charts in uh, Australia. Yeah, yeah. We need to we need to track down that um, Stephen Baldwin movie though. We definitely do. What's number nine? Number nine, oh, Brightburn. I read out number eleven, <laughs> <laughs> which is NGK. So it wasn't in the top ten. <laughs> I'm sorry. Number ten is that. 2040 documentary garbage that we talked about last time, which grossed 103,285. Wow. Uh, number nine is Brightburn with 2,455,683. Okay. Number nine, Australia's Top End Wedding. I'm sorry to say it's dropped two places from last mm. week to number nine. But that's how movies with, tend, to, uh, tend to go. 114,642. Stay in there. <laughs> or I'll kill myself. Uh, yep. Number eight is Booksmart, $3,301,398. Uh, number eight is Brightburn. $92. I meant to say 92 Sorry, sorry. Number eight is Brightburn, 224779 Okay. Number seven is Pokemon Detective Pikachu with $6,952,882. Number seven is The Hustle with $248,344. Bucks. Bucks. Uh, number six is uh, Avengers in Game. Aven- uh, mm. Avengers at Amame. $8,037,491. Mm-hmm. Uh, number six in Australia is Imagine Sregvega. <laughs> Avengers in Game. With $549,492. You mean Avengers at Amame? At Amame, that's the one, yeah. Sorry. Thank you. Okay, uh, number five is Jean Vac. It's up to <laughs> with eleven million dollars What? I'm glad you're persisting with that joke pronunciation. Which joke? Uh, no, no joke. Very good. I mean, that totally accurate pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, number five in Australia is Pokemon Detective Pikachu with six hundred eighty-eight thousand two hundred eight dollars gross. And number four, we have our first new release, which is Ma twenty nineteen with eighteen. Ma, what's that? It's a horror movie where uh, oh, Octavia yeah, yeah, Spencer yeah, yeah. gets a bunch of teens yeah. drunk and then murders them or something. I don't, I don't know. I have seen the trailer, yes. Seemed maybe amusing. I don't know. Uh, 18,999,000, or sorry, 18,099,805. Mm. Number four in Oz is John Wick Chapter 3 uh-huh. Parabellum, uh-huh. which grossed 1,124,481. Number three. In the Ete Unity is Rocket Man with twenty five million seven hundred and twenty five thousand seven hundred and twenty two dollars. It's rocketing up the charts. Well, number three in Australia is Godzilla, King of Monsters, Godzilla. with one million eight hundred forty thousand three hundred twenty four. Okay. Number two in America is Aladdin twenty nineteen with mm. forty two. Million eight hundred and forty thousand and five hundred and forty four dollarinos. It has been knocked off the number one slot. Yeah. What's number two? I'm in... excited. So I'm excited to know what's Oz number one that. in America. Well, you already said number it, so. two in Ozland is Rocket Man. What? With three million one hundred thirty six thousand five hundred four dollars. Okay. And number one in. The United States of America is the aforementioned Godzilla King of Monsters oh, okay. for $47,700,000. Mm. Number one in 
seven hundred and seventy six thousand two hundred and ninety three dollars. Are you are you are you fucking are you fucking psyched for uh, Kong vs Godzilla next year, buddy? Yeah, yeah. No, do you care to guess what the one is in Australia? Okay, uh, is it Godzilla King of Monsters? <laughs> no. Is it Rocket Man? No, it's not Rocket is Man. Is it Ma? No. Is it John Wick Chapter Three? No. Is it Avengers Edamame? Avengers Edamame. No. Is it Pokemon Detective Pikachu? No. Is it Booksmart? No. Brightburn? No. The Hustle? No. A Dog's Journey? No. The Intruder 2019? No. Dumbo 2019? No. Okay, now just cut, cut all the audio for the last time and just paste it. Okay? <laughs> oh man, you, you skimped on that, huh? <laughs> yeah, you, you know what? The bit. It's getting late, buddy. Uh, it's Aladdin. <laughs> That's the movie you did. That's number one. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, second week in a row. $3 million, 986717 Wow. That's as much as our number eight. Wow. That's like nothing. It's not too bad. That's pretty bad. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus uh, I'll go about through my bonus features really quick, just because I don't really feel like we've been talking for like three hours at this point. No, you, uh, so you should we'll talk see. about your bonus features, and I should chip in as if they were my bonus features. That's stupid. So we kind of get around the fact that I didn't watch anything. So I watched Bergman's A Lesson in Love, which okay. was enjoyable enough. Feels like sort of a test run for uh, the fucking Smiles of a Summer Night. Features a mm-hmm. lot. It features a similar tone and a lot of the same cast as that film, um, but isn't quite as funny. I don't like it as much, but it's still good. It's an interesting structure. Some good moments. Some moments that I didn't think came off that well. Uh, <laughs> there's this weird part that it made it seem like Bergman had been reading a lot of feminist literature, <laughs> but that was funny. Mm. Um, yeah. So not bad. Pretty good. Bergman's a good director, it turns out. Uh, and then I watched... Two films that I talked about previously, which are Jacques Demy short films, Les Horizons Morts and Le Saboteur du Val de Loire. Uh, which are two Jacques Demy short films. Both fine enough, I guess. I watched another have Jacques you seen Poe Don? Huh? No, I have not. Okay. Uh, I watched another Jacques no, Demy. Ours. Huh? I watched another Jacques Demy short film <laughs> called Ours. Which is a Jacques Demy short film about this priest in a small town in France. That's okay. Uh, I watched Olivier Assayas's new film, Nonfiction, um, mm-hmm. which is this sort of kind of satire about the publishing world that I really enjoyed a lot. Um, it's kind of, it feels a little minor, but it has an enjoyable cadence to its dialogue, and it's funny enough and. Raises some interesting questions about the future of digital technology. That's sort of fucking gibberish. Kind of like the less uh, violent and oppressive version of Demon Lover. Mm. And I watched Jacques Demy's Lola, which you have watched, and I believe talked about on the show. Yes, it's great. Yeah, just a brilliant little film. And then finally, just a mere 30 minutes before we started recording, I watched With My Roommate... The Animal Crossing movie, which is a film 
It's never been officially released in America. And I would say it's not a great piece of cinema, but it does ably uh, capture the mood of the games in that it doesn't have any plot. And it's just sort of about someone moving to a town that has a bunch of animals in it and making friends with them. That's it. Is it only half an hour long? No, it's 80 minutes. It's a oh, you week. finished watching it 30 minutes before the yeah, podcast. Yeah, I finished okay. watching it 30 minutes before the podcast. Why did you decide to watch the Animal Crossing well, movie? Well, my roommate is a really big fan of the Animal Crossing video games. Right. And for her birthday, I uh, acquired a copy of it. And made it into a disc for her so that she could watch it. And we watch it together tonight. So there you go. That's why I watched that. Uh, and that is it. You can never know what it's like. Your blood like a winter freezes just like ice And there's a cold lonely light that shines from you You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use And did you think this fool could never win? Well look at me, I'ma come back again I got a taste of love in a simple way And if you need to know while I'm still standing You just fade away Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid I'm still standing after all this time Picking up the pieces of my life Without you on my mind I'm still standing I'm still standing Once I never could have hoped to win You starting down the road leaving me again The threats you made were meant to cut me down and if our love was just a circus You'd be a clown by now You know, I'm still standing better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid I'm still standing after all this time Picking up the pieces of my life without you on my mind I'm still standing Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm still standing